This is Kenneth Vigue. We are 24 hours away from the start of season two of the podcast. And when I say that this episode is about the best writing I've ever done, it's no boast. Ask any author, and it's rare that we are completely satisfied with the creation. Our homage to Ray Bradbury, titled Halloween in October Country, is a marvelous cinematic audio experience, and clocking in at 2 hours 26 minutes, it's essentially a feature film. I couldn't be more happy with the incredible work the cast did on this story. They acted their asses off, and it shows. Before that, however, I wanted to bring you something different. After this podcast took off, I started the Fallout 76 Writers Campfire Guild to help other would-be authors and podcasters find a support group to help get their tales told. After months of work, their shows are coming online this year in the form of new, original stories set in the Fallout universe, and they are magnificent. As a little bit of a teaser... Some of our group have written some original horror stories suited to the season. The Fallout 76 Writers Campfire Guild invites you to don your finest Halloween outfit, pull in close by our campfire, and put those weapons away. There's cold Nuka-Colas there, and Stimpaks over there, just in case the mosquitoes get a little frisky. Each tale we tell tonight will begin and end with the sound of a gong, an homage to the style of one of my favorite old-time radio programs, Lights Out. First up is a tale from our friends at the Omega Broadcast Podcast, whose Fallout 76 original radio drama launched this year has taken off. Huh? Do you hear that? Sounds like something's flying overhead. Something big. Something terrible. And something that watches. Entry number 7, October 30th, 2102. I've been out of Vault 76, out here on my own for close to seven days. Tomorrow is Halloween. I'm sitting here around my campfire, just sipping on these last few drops of this Nuka cherry, trying to remember what Halloween was like before the bombs don't really remember much of that life, but there are some memories that I'm sure will stick with me until the day that I die. I just want to say that I'm not a fan of this new Appalachia. Everywhere I go, it's so empty. Every new day, I just, I feel so, well, so alone. Anyways, like I said, It's Halloween tomorrow, and I can't think of a more fitting thing to do than record a journal entry. And not just any journal entry. A scary journal entry. Kind of like a campfire story. So, 
if somehow you found this and you're listening to it, you might not think it's that scary, but it sure scared the hell out of me. See, I'd been out of the vault for every bit of 48 hours, and I really wasn't sure where to start. Other than an instructional holotape left to me from the overseer, my path seemed like my own to choose. So I decided, you know what? First things first. Let's go back to my old house in Point Pleasant. So I did just that. And tried to make my way over there. You know, I figured I'd hit up the old house first. And then if I had time, maybe I'd check out my dad's old store in town. But... I didn't accomplish any of that. I made it to just outside the city limits when I could hear gunshots in the distance. And these gunshots didn't instill any sort of fear in me at all. As a matter of fact, I actually came a bit excited. To me, the gunshots didn't mean danger. To me, they meant that there were people over there. So with a bit of excitement, I made my way closer to the town. and the sun began to set, I could see silhouettes of what looked like people on the rooftops. As I made it to the bridge that crossed right into town, I heard this bone-chilling shriek, and I stopped immediately in my tracks. What was that sound? I had never heard anything like that in my life. As I stood there frozen with fear, the evening began to grow darker and colder. The dusk quickly transformed into a dark and quiet nighttime. And the darker it got, the quicker the silhouettes of the people on the rooftops just disappeared. And then I began to notice that the sound of the gunfire eventually stopped. curiosity quickly began to overtake the fear that I was feeling and that partial paralysis in my legs began to fade and I began to move slowly towards the now darkness covered town one thing you gotta understand is I haven't been outside a vault since I was 10 years old so I have absolutely no clue what horrors are out here in this new Appalachia so I clicked the flashlight on my vault tech issued Pip-Boy, slowly made my way forward. As I began to get closer to the main street in town, I saw a bunch of dead bodies on the ground. But these people looked almost diseased, scorched even. My heart sank when I realized that these creatures weren't human. Well... It might have been at one point, but not anymore. By the look of them, they didn't seem like they'd be too friendly. Luckily, I haven't run into any more of them so far while I'm out here. I then begin to hear this faint scratch in the distance. The sound was a lot like tiny little pecks across a solid wooden surface. And these scratches began to get louder and louder. And the louder they got, 
the more I realized that there were footsteps and whatever was walking had more than just two feet. So my pace quickened as I hurried along the main street. Main Street in Point Pleasant runs parallel to the Ohio River. And at night, the river looks like a silky blanket shimmering in the moonlight. Most nights, this view would be considered beautiful. But on that night, it just added to the ambiance of terror that I was beginning to feel. The quicker I began to move forward, the louder and closer those footsteps grew. Then in what felt like a snap of a finger, the footsteps just stopped. So I decided to pause for a moment and gather myself. And as I stood there with my head on a swivel, I began to feel overwhelmingly tired. My body began to tremble with uncontrollable shakes. And a fevered cold sweat began to pour from my brow. My mind was racing. What was wrong with me? How could I go from feeling perfectly fine in one moment to what felt like sitting on the edge of death? Then out of nowhere, that bone-chilling shriek echoed right above me once again. And in an instant, my tiredness and weakness disappeared. I soon felt a rush of a second wind. I turned quickly behind me to see on the ground at my feet the largest tick that I had ever seen in my entire life, and it was dead. And in a quick snap reaction, I jumped backwards and felt my feet step into a moist and yet sticky puddle. And the sudden aroma of a metal and copper began to fill the air. I kneeled down to get a closer look at what I was standing in. And as the greenish glow from my Pip-Boy cast across the ground, I realized that it was blood. And it's not just any blood. It was my own blood. The dizzy and tired feeling that I had felt earlier was because that tick had attached itself to my leg and was beginning to drain the blood from my body. My mind again began to race in fear and wonder as to if there were any more of these giant ticks around me. And what killed this particular one? Did it drain so much of my blood that it just burst? While pondering in silence, I began to hear more of those tiny scratches in the distance. This time, it was more than just one. There were multiple legs moving and scurrying in the darkness. I quickly stood to my feet and began to inch my way backwards, slowly, step by step with my eyes focused in the direction of the noise. It was in this moment when I took a step backwards and heard a soft but loud crunch under my feet. And in that exact moment, the very second I heard the crunch... I felt a sudden rush of air wisp around me like a small tornado. And within seconds, that loud shrieking began to scream out into a constant siren. Frozen in fear yet again, I began to look left and, and then right. And 
then high and then low. And but out of the corner of my eye, I saw a faint red glow on the tree line. I slowly turned my head, and as my gaze caught the trees, I saw a pair of big red eyes staring right at me. I wanted to look away, but I just couldn't. Whatever it was had me in some sort of trance. As the creature and I locked eyes, I began to see another set of red eyes slowly fade into view behind it. And then another. And then one more. My body began to tremble in fear and a cold shiver ran down my spine. My throat began to swell up with what I thought for sure was a scream, but... When I opened my mouth, all that came out was a gust of air that had built up within my lungs. My thoughts began to race once more. Do I, do I stand and try to blend into the night? Do I raise my weapon and try to fire or do I just run and get the hell out of here? Fight or flight can be a funny thing when it becomes the only choice that matters to you. So I thought to myself, okay, maybe raise your gun and fire. You know, the sound of the gunshots just might scare off whatever that is watching me. So I slowly lifted my rusty pipe pistol into the air. and As soon as my finger grazed across the trigger... All four creatures began to let out a shriek so blood-curdling that my knees gave out within an instant. And I quickly decided, okay, Brian, just run. So I jumped to my feet and ran faster than I had ever ran in my entire life. I ran back up Main Street, across the bridge, and straight out of town. The faster and further I ran... The shrieking began to grow quieter and quieter. And I realized whatever that was just wanted me out of its territory. So I've decided I'm going to put off going back to Point Pleasant for a while. At least until I'm able to work up the courage. Now... Here I am just four days after that not-so-fun night in my old hometown of Point Pleasant. It's crazy because I still feel like that creature is out there somewhere watching me. You know, sometimes at night, I'm certain that I can see the eyes and the trees around my camp, but mostly just my overactive imagination getting the better of me. Anyways. That's that story. So, it's getting late. and I need to get some food fixed up and get ready for dinner and then bed. Brian Burton, journal entry number seven. Signing out. What was that? Oh, shit, not again.
Next up is an original audiobook-style story from Lawrence McNamara, titled Vital Equipment. In this tale, two people set out from Foundation to track down some stolen equipment. In their quest to reclaim what was theirs, they will find out that some of the worst monsters on this small blue world are those that wear faces like our own. Welcome to a Fallout 76 Halloween special episode, Vital Equipment. Somewhere in the Savage Divide, two figures make their way slowly down a steep incline as the sun begins to disappear behind the nearby peaks. They are both dressed in typical scavenger garb, the man wearing a wide-brimmed hat and overcoat, while the woman covers her dirty blonde hair under an old Grafton High ball cap and sports a set of salvaged army fatigues. Their conversation can be heard drifting in the breeze. Tom, is that damn tracker working or what? Cool your heels, Kathy. We're going in the right direction, I'm sure of it. Next time Ward loses one of those multiscopes, I'm going to find it just so I can jam it up his rear. <laughs> the man laughs. You know Ward pays well, Kathy, and your scavenger runs haven't been paying the bills lately. Screw you, Tom. That last run in Watoga would have fetched us a fortune if you hadn't run at the first sight of that assaultron. Can't spend caps if you've been vaporized. Kathy gives Tom the finger as they end up at the bottom of a small valley bordered by the tall trees and long shadows of the divide. The radio tracker suddenly starts beeping. About time. Looks like the signal might have been blocked by the hills. I'm getting a strong reading in that direction. Tom gestures to the far side of the valley. Kathy eyes the terrain, imagining a wendigo or super mutant behind every rock and pulls out her hunting rifle, making sure it's loaded and the safety's off. Tom walks slowly forward with Kathy behind as the tracker beeps loudly and more insistently. Tom! She pokes him in the shoulder with the barrel of her rifle. It's going to be dark soon. I really don't like the feel of this place. He ignores her and keeps walking poking him again. Why don't we make camp back at the bluff and come back down here in the morning? Don't be such a baby. First you complain I'm not brave enough and now you're complaining that I won't drop and run just because you had a bad feeling? You got your rifle. I got my SMG. We'll be back at Foundation eating Sunny's hoagies before you know it. Tom picked up the pace as the last rays of sunlight faded over the mountains, leaving them in a deepening gloom. Kathy wanted to turn on her flashlight, but she was two seasons of a wastelander to give away her position for what was probably little benefit. The shadows moved and shifted around her. She closed her eyes, took a breath, and convinced herself that she was imagining things. She almost ran into Tom as he stopped short at the edge of a small clearing. Watch it! He shushed her and snapped off the scanner. Tom turned and crouched down with Kathy kneeling beside him. It's on the other side of that clearing, he whispered. I think I see a small cave back there. Either our thief made camp for the night or maybe some animal got him and dragged the body into its den. We go in there, we get what we came for, then we go home. Kathy looked over Tom's shoulder. The clearing backed right up to the very end of the valley. Where the trees ended, she could see the cliff face, going nearly straight up and unclimbable. A little to the left, in a cleft in the rocks, there seemed to be a small cave entrance. Nothing moved, even the normal sounds of insects had receded to silence. There are times I really hate you, Tom, she whispered. Tom smiled. I love you too, Kathy. Now let's go put some food on the table. He unslung his SMG and motioned for her to cover him. She watched him hug the tree line as he snuck towards the cave entrance. Kathy scanned the area, looking behind, again trying to shake the feeling that there was something moving out there. When she looked back, Tom was waving at her. She quietly made her way over to him. 
From here, Kathy could see the entrance was about man-sized and covered in some kind of moss. Without the tracker, they probably never would have spotted it, especially in the dying light. She was just about to say something when Tom shushed her. Quiet, he whispered. I hear something. Kathy listened as well. At first, all she could hear was the breeze blowing through the trees. But as she took a half-step closer to the entrance, she heard something else. Some kind of hissing coming from inside. As quietly as possible, she said, What the hell is that, Tom? Some kind of snake? Nah, he replied. I thought I heard someone talking just a second ago. I don't think the cave is that big and whoever's inside might be hurt. I'm going in, but I want you right behind me, okay? Kathy was just about ready to object because nothing felt quite right, but she knew Tom was a stubborn bitch when he wanted to be. He slipped into the cave with her staying close. It went from dark to nearly pitch black. They moved mostly by touch, keeping one hand on the wall and the other on their weapons, inching forward and listening. The hissing sound was getting louder. Kathy thought she heard words in the hissing, but nothing she could understand. They both could smell smoke and saw a dim light flickering around a corner. Tom, Tom, what? Let's get out of here. We can come back when it's light. She couldn't see the look on his face, but she could hear him sigh. Just cover me. Promise. When we get back, I'll get you something nice. Kathy steeled herself as Tom inched forward, closer to the light. He raised his SMG and lunged around the corner, with a Kathy a few steps back. She was just turning when he, she heard Tom speak. What the ever-loving hell? He sounded puzzled. As her eyes adjusted to the light, she found herself in an alcove. There had been a small campfire in the middle, but now it was just embers giving off a faint glow. She scanned the rest of the space, seeing a few small boxes and packs filled with scrap, and in one corner sat the multiscope they'd been looking for. Kathy was just about to take a step forward when Tom held out his arm and stopped her. Look, he pointed at what she thought was a rucksack. It was their thief, but it wasn't at the same time. The hissing had stopped and she heard it. It is us. We are it. Then hissing again. It hurts. The body seemed to be glowing and looked like nothing Kathy had ever seen before. Was he burned? He, he looked charred. Tom edged closer to the body, lowering his gun. Hey, buddy, you okay? We're just here to help. We are one! The body suddenly sprang to life and leapt at Tom. Shit! Tom was thrown on his back, the thief on top of him. Kathy tried to get a clear shot, but in the confined space, she only saw Tom and the body thing rolling around on the floor in a mass of flailing limbs. Tom yelled, Get it off! She took two steps forward and slammed the butt of her rifle down on the thing's head just as it was sinking its teeth into Tom's arm. A sickening thud reverberated as its head caved in, and it slumped over. Ow! Tom cradled his arm as he slowly rose to his feet. The body lay to the side, still faintly glowing green. Kathy could see that Tom was pissed. He kicked the body several times and let out a string of curses that would have made a raider blush. Kathy got a closer look as Tom walked around in a circle to try to calm himself down. The thief looked like he'd been burned in a fire. All of his exposed skin was the color of charcoal, with glowing veins running along the surface, and was still warm. Not just warm, but hot to the touch. Get the multiscope and let's go, Tom said. Kathy got up and grabbed him by the arm. Let me look at you first. Sure enough, he had several scrapes and cuts on his arms and one nasty-looking bite mark. She sat the pack down and took out their med kit. She poured a bit of water on the wounds, followed by some disinfectant, making Tom wince. Sorry, she said. As a precaution, she gave him a shot of antibiotic and wrapped up his arm with the last bit of gauze they had. It wasn't the best field dressing she'd ever done, but it would do until they got back to Foundation. Tom kicked the body one last time for good measure, then packed up the multiscope. Kathy was confused. Did the thief have some kind of disease or horrifying skin condition? 
They'd only been in Appalachia for a short time with Foundation, and she'd never seen anything like this. She would talk to Aubrey when they got back. Maybe he knew something about it. Come on, let's go. Tom had grabbed some of the other scrap lying around the cave and stuffed it into his pack. He considered it partial compensation for all the trouble they had just finding that damn multiscope. Maybe Kathy had a point about telling Ward where he could shove it. Backtracking out of the cave, Kathy knew something wasn't right. The valley had initially felt empty. Now it felt different. Hold on. She turned on her flashlight and immediately regretted it. Illuminated by the cone of light, they saw more blackened things coming out of the tree line. Dozens of them, each glowing faintly with some having some kind of crystals growing out of their charcoal skin. They hissed in unison. Not us. Both Tom and Kathy took a step back, almost frozen. The creatures surged forward. Run, run, get to the cave, Tom yelled. They turned tail and made it just ahead of the horde. Tom spun and fired his SMG, emptying his magazine into the first half-dozen or so creatures as they swarmed the entrance. Kathy fired her rifle as quickly as she could work the bolt. It was over as quickly as it started. Most of the creatures lay dead at their feet, but the others had retreated back into the woods. There was no telling how many more of them might be out there. <sighs> well, looks like we're going to have to wait here till morning anyway, Tom said grimly. They had plenty of ammo left, plus the food they brought along. At least in the cave, they had good cover. They'd make a break for it at first light, get back to Foundation, and forget this night ever happened. For the first couple hours, they took turns watching the clearing. Though it was pitch black, they knew they were not alone. The trees rustled and the hissing didn't stop. Around midnight, Tom came down with a bad fever. Kathy made him lie down and gave him some purified water. She also gave him another dose of antibiotics, too, just to be safe. The creatures made no further attempt to rush the cave. By morning, Kathy wasn't even sure they were still around. She could hear songbirds and even see frogs jumping from one side of the clearing to the other, though they made a wide berth around the bodies of the dead. Kathy had been checking on Tom every hour. Despite the antibiotics, his fever still hadn't broken. If anything, it had gotten worse. Sweat was pouring off his body and his brown hair was matted and brittled. Tom, she applied a wet rag to his head. We need to get you back to Foundation. We can't stay here. Can you move? Tom opened his eyes and coughed. <coughs> it hurts, Cat. It hurts. It hurts so much. The gauze on his arm was soaked with some kind of greenish pus. She gingerly unwrapped it and saw the wound was festering and the skin was starting to take on a darkish hue, similar to what they had seen on the creatures. No, 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 she muttered, trying to hold back the tears. Tom, we need to go. She reached back into the med kit and pulled out their only dose of psychotats. It was supposed to boost perception, so maybe it would help Tom snap out of it and get moving. I'm sorry if this hurts. She slapped the injector against his thigh, eliciting a wail from Tom, but his eyes cleared a little and he was back to cursing again, which Kathy took as a good sign. She grabbed him by his good arm and helped him to his feet. She leaned him up against the wall of the cave while she disposed of everything that wasn't needed for their survival. When she got to the multiscope, she almost, almost threw it across the cave. Stupid ward, Kathy muttered before stuffing it back in his pack. She'd bring it back, but she'd be demand an extra payment for all the trouble and free medical care for Tom, too. Kathy, Tom was scratching his bandaged arm. Get out of here. Get help and come back for me. She wanted to punch him. Oh, hell no. We came in here together and we're getting out of here together. Just move, damn it, and I'll get Aubrey to fix you up when we get back. That seemed to light a fire under Tom, who stood up a little straighter and even managed to help finish up the packing. He reached down for his SMG when Kathy stopped him. No, you're in no condition to fight. Just move. I'll take the SMG. She picked up the weapon and slapped in a fresh magazine. Tom was still pretty unsteady on his feet, but Kathy led him to the cave entrance. The sun was peeking back over the mountains, but the shadows in the valley were still long and deep. 
They had to get across the clearing, then wind their way to the other side of the valley. If they didn't run into the creatures, that would be the easy part. Getting back up the hillside would be the next challenge, and after? She'd figure that out when they got there. As they passed the bodies of the dead creatures, they still gave off a greenish glow and smelled like rancid sulfur. Kathy tried to keep herself from gagging, but Tom just hobbled by, taking no notice either of the corpses or the foul odor. Keeping Tom moving was a challenge. He was still burning up and they were running out of water. He brushed his arm against a tree and started to scream in pain before Kathy covered his mouth with her hand. She looked at his arm again and the blackish tone had gotten even darker and was spreading further up his arm. Even worse, she could see dark areas of his skin on his other arm and even up his neck. Cat, I'm real sick. Feels like I'm burning up inside. Don't you quit on me. You promised me a hoagie and I'm going to make sure you pay up. She put his arm over her shoulder and helped him through the trees in the underbrush. It took longer than she wanted, but she didn't see any of the other creatures, and she set Tom down at the base of the hillside. As she examined the path up, she'd figured she'd either need to drag Tom or push him up in front of her. The psychotats had worn off, and Tom was sinking back down into delirium again. He was sitting on a rock with his head in his hands. Never alone, he muttered. Kathy walked over and took his hand, and she nearly jumped back when he looked up at her. His eyes had changed to a pale yellow and his hair was starting to fall out. Oh my god. Tom, get up, please, she begged. She could see the eruptions of yellowish veins on his skin spreading as she watched. Can't stop, he hissed at her. There was a rustling in the underbrush behind them. She unconsciously took a step back as several of the creatures emerged from the tree line. No, 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 she fought back the panic and the tears. They shambled forward, hissing. Not of us. Never alone. Always together. Tom fell in with the creatures. Never alone. Always together. The things chanted as they advanced. Kathy took another step back, bringing up the SMG. She needed to pull the trigger. She wanted to pull the trigger. But she couldn't. That thing was still Tom. He walked towards her, arms outstretched. Always together, he hissed at her. He was almost on top of her, almost touching her when she finally hit him with the butt of her gun, knocking him back onto the ground. For the briefest of moments, she saw recognition in his eyes. Cat, run! She finally snapped too as the rest of the creatures were nearly upon her. In a panic, she turned and started clambering up the hillside, tears streaming down her face as she grabbed rocks and saplings to pull herself up. The sharp stone edges and broken branches cut her skin, but she kept moving as fast as she could. She could still hear the creatures behind her, now wailing and hissing at her as she expected they'd be right behind. It seemed like she'd been climbing forever, but it must just have been a few minutes before she found herself back on the overlook they'd been the day before, hands on her knees, gasping for air. The blood from her many cuts and abrasions dripped on the rocks, staining them. As she looked back, Kathy's eyes went wide as she saw the creatures bounding up behind her. Never alone, she heard as they climbed up the hillside. She ran. She didn't know where she was running to, only that she needed to go. A quick look over her shoulder confirmed that they were now level with her and still running. Worse, she could see Tom among them now, almost indistinguishable from the others. No, 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 she thought as she ran. She could hear them getting closer, screaming at her. She willed herself to go faster, even as her muscles rebelled against her and her lungs hurt from the exertion. Up ahead, Kathy could see the top of the ridge. If she could get there, she could start sliding down the other side and put some distance between her and those things. She had to get away, to get home, to be anywhere but here. She glanced back and the creatures were no more than a few dozen feet behind her. It was a mistake. Kathy never saw the outcrop until she barreled right into it at full speed. 
She was knocked on her back and the contents of her pack scattered across the ground. On the verge of unconsciousness, Kathy could hear the quick shuffling of feet, and as she started to black out, she thought she heard the sound of gunfire, distant but growing closer. The last thing she felt before the darkness closed in around her were hands dragging her along the ground, and then nothing. Sometime later, Kathy was dreaming, dreaming of Tom. They were together, laughing, drinking. He reached out to touch her face, bringing her in close for a kiss. When she opened her eyes, he was staring in the face of one of those creatures. It opened its mouth, and she screamed. Kathy woke with a start. She blinked her eyes several times before looking around. She was in some kind of hospital bed. She was hooked up to several different machines along with a couple of IVs feeding into her arm, and she was dressed in a medical gown. The room was stark, white, sterile. Large sliding door dominated one side and the other a small table and a single chair. Next to it was a standing terminal, but its screen was blank. Looking up, Kathy saw a camera pointed at her. She had a bit of a headache and her arms were covered in bandages. She was sore all over, but at least it appeared she was in one piece. Um, hello? She called out to no one in particular. The camera beeped and she could see the lens focusing on her. Then she heard a voice from an intercom. Ah, our patient is awake. It was a woman's voice. Someone will be in shortly. She lay back on the bed. Oh God, she thought. She lost Tom. He was dead. No, not dead. He'd, what, been infected? What happened? What was it? Tears welled as she felt the loss of her love, her partner. About ten minutes later, she heard footsteps and a clanking coming towards the door. It slid open and in walked a young woman wearing some kind of uniform, a military one by the looks of it, followed by two protectrons. Kathy noticed a long scar running down the right side of the woman's face. She smiled and walked over to the bed. Good morning. My name is Colonel Valeria, with the Enclave. And who would you be? Kathy sniffled but managed a small smile back. Um, I'm Kathy, from Foundation. Where am I? Ah, she said. You're a patient in our facility. We're currently below the White Spring Resort, if you know where that is. Kathy must look confused because Valeria continued. It's a long story, but suffice it to say you're safe now, and no, first, no worse for wear, it appears. How did I get here? Kathy asked. Oh, you were very lucky. One of our teams was patrolling the area and just happened to run into you. The Scorched. Scorched? That's what we call those things you saw. They were almost on top of you. But our team managed to drive them off and got you out of there. They carried you all the way back, and, and here you are. Valeria waved her hand around the room. Tom, I mean, I was with someone. I, th I think he got infected or something. Kathy teared up again. The colonel frowned. Yes, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's a plague. It infected just about everyone else in the region, long before the folks at Foundation showed up. But again, you're a very lucky girl. You have a clean bill of health, no infection, and in fact, that's quite a bit of luck for us too. Kathy looked confused. Well, there isn't a cure for this disease. We, we do have a vaccine. In fact, we were just about ready to go talk to the folks at Foundation about making sure that they got inoculated. However, we heard the leadership over there, this Paige fella, can be quite stubborn. Kathy nodded. She liked Paige, but he could be thick as a brick sometimes. The door slid open again and an orderly walked in with a tray of food. What looked like some fancy lad snack cakes and several bottles of opossum beer. He put the tray down on a small table and took a quick glance at Kathy and left. We expect Paige might take a bit of convincing on how dangerous this plague is and 
that's in its best interest to cooperate. And that's where you come in. Kathy perked up. Oh, I'd, I'd be happy to help. I mean, I need to get back home anyway. My parents are probably worried about me, and I need to, well, I need to let them know about Tom, too. The colonel clapped her hands together. Oh, I'm so very glad to hear that. She turned to the terminal behind her. Modus? The screen blinked to life, with some kind of computer-generated face on it. Yes, Colonel. We can begin the infection procedure immediately. Confused, Kathy looked at the screen and, and back at the Colonel. Wait, what procedure? What are you talking about? I just need to show Paige exactly how dangerous things are and how serious this plague is, and you're going to help us do that. The Colonel's smile no longer reached her eyes, which had turned cold. The Colonel took a couple of steps back from the bed and signaled the two protectrons. They grabbed both of Kathy's arms and held her down to the bed. I'll help you. I, I promise. I'll, I'll tell them. Paige will listen to me. Please, you don't have to do this. Let me go. Kathy struggled against the bots, but they held her tight. The colonel stepped forward again and reached under the bed, picking up a set of restraints. Ignoring Kathy's pleas, she meticulously snapped the cuffs onto Kathy's arms and legs, pinning her down. She started screaming, Get, get off of me! You, you can't do this! Let me go! One of the protectrons produced a large syringe filled with a dark red liquid. With its other hand, it pressed Kathy's head to the side, exposing her neck. The colonel took a seat in the chair at the end of the room, just outside of the range of the camera. We're going to show Paige exactly what he needs to see. This should convince him to cooperate. Kathy screamed into the pillow as the protectron plunged the needle into her neck, injecting the red liquid directly into her bloodstream. Colonel Valeria reached into her pocket and took out a set of plugs, carefully putting one into each of her ears, and watched as the protectron retracted the syringe and left the room. Kathy was left struggling and screaming in the bed, thrashing from side to side. Popping open one of the beers, the colonel sat back in the chair and signaled for Modus to begin the recording. West Virginia, with its whispering mountains, deepest caves, and old, old byways, is brimming with local folklore. In this original audiobook-style story from Michael Tanner titled The Story of Righty and Tidy, a local tells you the strange tale of a mother and daughter and a precious jewel. But be wary, would-be raider. Those two aren't all they appear to be. The Story of Righty and Tidy by Michael Tanner It's easy to tell if someone lived in Appalachia before the war. If they had, they for sure knew the story of Mrs. Righty and Little Tidy. It didn't matter if you'd been born in Old Welch to a coal mining clan or moved to New Watoga for your first job out of university. Sooner or later, you had an encounter with those two ladies. They were mother and daughter, you see. Mrs. Righty had been the wife of a prominent physician in Charleston. Her husband, unfortunately, took his own life after an embarrassing scandal involving the discovery of some red propaganda in his office. Funny the things people put such emphasis on back then. Although the Rydies appeared well off, they were actually dead gone broke. 
Some said this was due to Mrs. Wrighty's addiction to looking young, and others said it was due to Little Tidy's condition. Truth be told, both were true. They spent every dime they had on experimental treatments, radiation therapy, chemical therapy, even some spiritual healings at that fancy retreat. Nothing worked to cure poor Little Tidy, or keep the ravages of time away from Mrs. Wrighty. What was Little Tidy's condition? That's the billion dollar question. No one knows. She was always a bigger gal. You know how nicknames can work. Little Tidy went everywhere, covered head to toe. Long fox fur coat, long cashmere scarf done all around her face, dark glasses like the first lady, and a wide-brimmed hat she could have worn to the derby. Summer or fall, hot day or frigid, that was Little Tidy's fashion choice. Those who knew them then and after said Tidy never seemed to mature beyond adolescence in verbiage or demeanor. She was a conundrum. She was little tidy. After the Red Doctor's death, that's what the paper called him. Mother and daughter were destitute with only the clothes on their back, which luckily for Tidy included the aforementioned outfit. Tidy was left with one extra accoutrement, a blue sapphire ring given to her on her ninth birthday by a rich family friend. Beautiful piece of jewelry that was, and she refused to part with it. Unique in that it was called priceless, but definitely could fetch a good price. Mrs. Wrighty was left with no jewelry, but with similar dress. Although she would never back then hide her face in the scarf, she did look good for her age, and her makeup would always be impeccable. Deep red lips and blushing cheeks and eyelashes like a flytrap. As the years went on, this adherence to having her full face on would become a little unsettling. One of the more unsettling things about her Oh, and her hair. We all knew it was a wig, but we were being polite. Everyone's interactions with Ridey and Tidy ended with the two of them clucking and scratching at each other about some perceived wrong. It might involve something in the moment, or a slight from years ago might be called to the front, usually about a gentleman caller. Either way, the outside party was soon free to continue on their merry, as they were no longer needed for this piece of drama. Local police had to stop allowing protectron units be dispatched to disturbance calls involving the two, on account of their logic circuits not being able to process the kind of logic the mother and daughter employed. At some point, they ended up with a beat-up old pickup truck and would park just outside city limits and sell, well, junk, really, out of the back. Old typewriters, desk fans, glass bottles, they'd try to flag down drivers, and all the locals knew not to stop. But passers-through and tourists would think two ladies were having car trouble and stopped to help. Then the poor suckers would get rusty old fans and broken Carlisles pushing their faces. To make a sale, Roddy would play at seducing any man long after the time that those seeds would find purchase. Leaning into the feller and staring up at him with those big doe eyes and those thick pouty lips, which grew more disquieting as the years marched on. Eventually, Taddy would start a jealous argument and break the spell that the mother had cast. Those now regretful Samaritans would take the opportunity to just throw some bucks at the two characters and jump back in their cars and escape, the strange encounter being relegated to an anecdote they'd spin when they left Appalachia and returned to civilization. Bingo, bango, bongo, as they say. One year, the mother and daughter pulled into Lewisburg, and the back of the truck was filled with what I guess you could call it art. It wasn't for me personally. It's a matter of taste is all. The sculptures were too grotesque. Iron bars twisted into new shapes and figures that were human, but not. Tidy was a little bit of a sensation for a minute. Made all the papers even. If Tidy had been a normal girl and if Ridey hadn't been too enthusiastic with the art critic at the Herald, 
they could have been back in the graces of high society. But she wasn't, and she was. It wasn't too many years on from that that the truck was found broken down and rusting. The front end smashed like they had been some kind of head-on collision. There's no sign of the mother and daughter, and the only reason we knew it was their truck was that one of Teddy's sculptures was still in the back. Most of us had assumed something terrible had befallen them. A sad tale of madness here in the mountains. Strangest of all, the truck was found in a holler, nowhere near a road. Then as our memory of them had just started to fade, Ridey and Tidy started to be seen walking along the back roads, arguing and yelling at each other like they had before. But something was different now. Tidy was more crooked than before, more like one of her sculptures. She was hunched and walked with a different, inhuman gait, and the fox fur coat she was known for was now just part of a quilt that looked more draped than worn. Mrs. Ridey's harsh tone and accusations were heard clear as day, but Tidy's responses sounded more like gulps and hisses than a petulant adult child arguing. Mrs. Ridey seemed to understand the sounds just the same. No one knew where they were coming from or going to. Most of us didn't want to find out. Where before they were an uncomfortable joke, now they were just uncomfortable. Did I ever see them? Sure, I was working hauling waste just north of White Springs. It was dusk, you almost always saw them at dusk, and I turned right out of the lot and there they were. Summer nights and my windows were down and the smell as I drove past them, by gosh, by golly, that was foul. And like I said, I was hauling waste. It wasn't too long after that that the bombs fell. I don't need to tell you about that, do I? No, didn't think so. All said and done, I do feel very lucky I survived. Things are hard now, for sure. People got pushed in ways they never prepared for and ended up in places they never imagined. Like me here with you right now. Now, remember when I said most of us didn't want to know where Roddy and Tidy were coming and going to? There was one feller I knew. Joey White, who decided he needed to find out. Joey White was one of the Whites. He heard of them, of course. He had designs on that girl back when they were both teenagers and little Tidy had money. Any courting would have been allowed strictly for laughs by her mother because ain't no way a White was marrying into a doctor's family. And after the doctor's death, why would he want to? All that was left was that ring. And after all that, although he denied it, he still had a bit of a thing for little Tidy. Even bought some of her art. Was it just a desire to get his mitts on that priceless blue sapphire ring? Make no mistake. As a man, he was no good and his intentions were the same. He fell in with a group of survivors right after the bombs who weren't quite... Well, we didn't have the term raider yet. We would have just called them hooligans. They hadn't gone so bloody that they weren't allowed near settlements and responder camps, but guards kept their fingers on the trigger when they came into trade. They specialized in pre-war luxuries. Things like jewelry. One day, Joey happened to be in camp when out of the forest strode Ridey herself all alone. She was wrapped up like her daughter used to be head to toe. Just a few wisps of that wig poking out here and there. He got to talking to her and soon Ridey was back to her flirting ways. Now, mind you, she was at least 70 years old now and not saying the aged can't get it, but there's a time and a place for such behavior, and Minister Winter's soup line was not the place and or time. He casually asked after Tidy, and Ratty assured him she was better than ever. Still had that sapphire ring, by the way. Although for safety, she now wore the ring on a chain around her neck. 
Later that night, Joey wandered away from his gang under the pretense of finding a fresh patch to water, but really snuck up into the hills. He followed Riley's precise instructions on where to find their cabin. The holler under the moon, past the flashing lights of the logging protectrons, through the soot flower field, continue along the dry creek bed, then you'll find it. And there he did, barely standing, with part of the roof collapsed, but not too bad considering some people were still in tents. A lone candle burned inside. As he got closer, he knew for sure this was the place, as he could make out the hulking, twisted shapes of tidy sculptures surrounding the place. In the candle flicker, he could have sworn he saw one of the sculptures move, but that would have been impossible. As he creeped to the door, he announced himself in a whisper, and a voice in the dark whispered back. Then a withered hand reached out of the darkness and took him by the wrist. Tidy? he asked trying to hide the slight tremble as he spoke. No, dear, came the voice. Into the light, Mrs. Rowdy stepped. She removed her hat and scarf. Even in the flicker of the auburn candlelight, he could see the garish red lipstick, although you could barely call what she had lips anymore. Those flytrap lashes now seemed to guard a pair of sunken black pearls set into the burned and cracked flesh. She leaned in close with her noseless face. Tidy's out back. Joey took the candle with him and made his way out of the back of the cabin. He found himself at the entrance of a cave. The smell of oil was met with an acrid burning, and the air around him felt like a crackle on his skin. He said her name aloud, but there was no response. Had Ratty tricked him? Was Tidy long dead and this was some kind of trap? He was about to turn and head back to his camp when the light of the candle reflected off something shiny deeper in the cave. He took another step in and the light caught it again, this time something blue. It was the necklace, the thing he was after all along. He went closer and it was clear to him that the necklace was hanging off one of Tidy's old sculptures. He reached up to snatch it and had it in his hand and was admiring the color when the statue moved just a bit. Startled, he pulled his hand back, breaking the chain. He couldn't help himself from gasping when now in the candlelight he saw a large eye staring back at him. Then a moment later, and not on any natural plane of symmetry, another eye opened. And then another. Then a gaping mouth of hideous teeth. Joey White fell backward into the oily sludge of the cave. He tried to scream, but no sound would come. The creature that all that chemical therapy and radiation treatments and finally the bombs had turned little tidy into hunched over him. There was no recognition in those many eyes, but if she had remembered him, if there had been a part of her left that recalled Joey White, I guarantee you it would have ended the same way. Serves him right. Now that people have returned to Appalachia, you'll start to hear about them again. Tales of the vain ghoul and her pet Snallygaster who haunt the back roads. But little one, you'll know the truth. And if you see them, be kind, but keep your distance. One of the greatest quest lines from year one, hands down, was the Order of Mystery. This truly unique faction that you could join, despite the fact that they'd all died out, was incredibly memorable, and I hope in future it gets expanded post-Wastelanders. 
In this original radio drama from Jennifer Snyder, two of the mistresses set out on a quest and stumble on some mannequins, as we all have from time to time. These relics of the old world, nude and pale as bone, stare unblinking as you approach. But in the words of the late and missing Mistress Hawkins, they aren't all they appear to be. list. <laughs> Jackpot. Let's see. Um, what the hell is a twisted nipple? It's three plasma grenades strapped to a mini nuke. Hey, Penny! Hi. Um, I was just... <laughs> Save it. No more explosives, but I did snag some sugar bombs for later. Oh, sweet! That's a great score! Now, to the white spring... Oh, man. What? It's a cluster of those creepy mannequins. Oh, oh no, 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 no. Kill it with fire. Lots and lots and lots of fire. They're so creepy. Oh, mon dieu. There's, oh, there's another cluster down the road. Oh. Huh. Interesting. Be right back. What is wrong with you? Being this close to these mannequins? Uh, Penny, I want to leave and, and go blow up cars and robots for Mayhem Night. Do you remember Mistress Hawkins? Who? Mistress Hawkins. She was my mentor. <laughs> uh, this one time, she got her ass handed to her by a mole rat and had left a scar on her right ear. Wait. Hawkins, isn't she on the MIA list? Why are you bringing her up all of a sudden? The mannequin has a scar on its right ear. It reminded me of her. We are not getting nostalgic. It's mayhem night! We are going to the White Springs and blowing things up with lots and lots of explosives. Now get that cute butt of yours moving. Ugh. Holy Mothman gives me strength. I love Mayhem Night. Team building exercises with explosives. You know... 
I brought my sexy beast for tonight. It loves making a big messy boom. Kickback is a bitch. There's going to be some bruises. But it's going to be worth it when it unloads on those bots. <laughs> and the explosion is going to take everyone's breath away. They won't be able to walk home once I'm done. <laughs> you know, your love for your fat man rivals your love for fire breathers. Imagine a fire breather carrying my sexy beast into- Oh! The hell! Don't interrupt me when I'm in my daydream. <laughs> Why did you... Did... Um... Sweet, merciful la homme papillon... Where? Why are there so many? I, I don't. I, I've, I've never seen so many so close together. They weren't there a minute ago. <sighs> yes, they were. Elle was distracting me with her fat man and fire breather talk. I think we should go a different way. Retracing our steps is not an option. Someone put them up behind us, too. I'm going to slowly murder whoever is setting these up. Did you hear scorched? Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of La Homme Papillon forever. That's a little much, Elle. Relax. We'll get out of here our way. The air feels different than normal. Please, please tell me that's your hand touching my hair. <laughs> I'm holding your hand and gripping the blade of Bastard with the other. Where did that mannequin come from? They were at least 40 feet away from us. There's no way we reached them already, and I did not misjudge the distance. There is no way we are getting that close to them. The smoke is thinning. I say we bushwookie up to the ridge. And I'm going to blow them up with my sexy beast. <sighs> we're here. Do it. Avec pleasure, Penny. May the Mothman shift in your ashes. What? There is no way I missed. Not with the blast radius of a mini-nuke. Mon Dieu, this is unreal. I swear, some of them turned their heads toward us. Are they moving? Don't care. I don't care. Let's go. <sighs> One more ridge should be enough distance between us. Holy Mothman, I can see them in the distance. <sighs> there's, there's a farmhouse up the hill. Barricade ourselves and pray and pray they have a ham radio to call out. We'll be trapped. <laughs> like like the time at West Tech. Good good memories there. 
How is that a good memory? You still decline supply missions. <laughs> good, good memory because we were in the closet <laughs> for hours. <laughs> really? Now? It's not the time. We need to get some distance between them and us. Elle, get out your sexy beast. Time to test the twisted nipple. All right, baby. Make mama proud. This would be absolutely gorgeous at the White Springs. Maybe, but why does it seem like it missed them? I have more, but we blasted them twice and there's no dent in their numbers. If we drop everything, we can make it to the White Springs. No added weight holding us down, but we'll be vulnerable. I'm not dropping Sexy Beast, and I'm not being taken down by a bloat fly. No, not happening. I say we barricade in the farmhouse and murder anything that comes in. How's the radio coming along? Still fried, but with a few more tweaks and I'll be able to activate the emergency signal. Good. Fortified the front door with everything, including the kitchen sink. Barricaded the windows, scattered dried leaves, paper, broken pieces of ceramic, sharp bits on the floors and staircase. Yeah, we won't miss their entrance if they come in. And the only way to the attic is through the trap door, and unless they can jump ten feet into the air, I think we're safe. You're so sexy when mistress mode is activated. <laughs> Ugh, get the radio working, you little devil. I'm going to take a peek out the front and back windows to size up our situation. There can't be this many in all of Appalachia. I'm counting at least 30. Not sure which is worse, the ones wearing the clothes or the naked ones. And another 30 out back. Ugh, it's official. The naked ones are worse. The way the moon is lighting them up. Ugh. Oh, praise be to the... Static. Get the ham radio set, L. We need to reach the headmistress. This is like West Tech. Attic's bigger, more room to move, and we have more explosives. I'm going to set up the twisted nipples to work like frag grenades. Or blow us to the cranberry bog. The radio is working! Opening up the emergency channel. There's no one out back. They must be funneling into the house. L. White Springs is three miles northeast of here out that window. 
Run like a scorch-beast queen is eyeing you up for dinner. Don't stop until you find the sentry bot at the entrance. Locate Headmistress Steele and let her know. I'm going to teach these guys what it means to fear the Mistress of Mystery. I'll see you at the White Springs, and you can tell Mistress Steele yourself. We'll race. In position, Mistress. Awaiting signal. What's the matter? Expecting me to cower? Not tonight! I've got more where that came from. I love you, Mr. Sentrybot. Need to find Headmistress Steele now. Let's see. Hmm. That sounds like a good place to start. Thank you, Mr. Sentrybot, for being constant. Headmistress Steele! Eloise! Where? Where's Penelope? We, um, ran into something, and she... She stayed behind to make them fear the mistresses of mystery. I understand. <clears throat> Ladies, Mistress Peterson is putting the fear of the mistresses into a vile villain. Are we going to let her have all the fun of such an act? I'll, I'll get that. She better save some for me. Lead the way, Seeker Bissette. What was that? Mr. Smith, run a diagnostic and pinpoint the origin immediately. What in the world happened here? Look. All the gardeners and the butlers are destroyed. Forget that. Who done popped off the head of the sentry bot? Wait. I see someone. Penny! Oh, should have known she'd make an entrance like that. She always pops the sentry bot's head when we stroll by. She really hates them. M Master. Desires. Souls. Penny, are you okay? This this isn't funny. Stop joking around. Why, why are you so pale and cold? L. Run. Now.
Our final tale now comes from Honor and Steel and sees two road-weary travelers that will feature in her upcoming original storytelling podcast, Far From Heaven, a Fallout 76 story. Encountering one of Appalachia's most terrifying legends in the flesh. Be mindful out there on the roads while scaving, for if you travel long enough, eventually you stumble on the reflection of evil personified. And it's going to stare right back at you. This is Honor and Steel, and this is my Fallout 76 horror story called A Stitch in Summertime. Hey, Bert, the candidate asked, his voice a soft echo in the shipping container. What is it, Frankie? The agent responder grunted as he checked the new entry in the register. To typo negative blood, signed for by responder Joel McKenzie. Must be Raiders again. That guy, Joel, was he Brotherhood or something before he became a responder? You know, because of the scars on his face? Bart looked over his shoulder as Frankie locked the chilled cabinets. He smiled kindly, knowing that Frankie was new and a kid compared to several decades. Him? No. Joel wouldn't go out of his way to harm anybody. He grew up in the responders since he was a kid. Bart explained. And don't buy the whole accident in the chem lab story folks tell you. At least you had the good sense to not ask him directly, he added quickly. Okay, but something tells me that you do, Bart, Frankie grinned. Bart grumbled and wiped his thick glasses with a threadbare handkerchief. Well, it's dead of night. No other casualties besides the one Joel and his pauper operating on. We got some time, but this ain't me gossiping like some old woman, you hear? He pulled out a folding chair from between some shelves and opened it with a juddering creak. Tell me, what stories you've heard of the strange things in these mountains? Bart asked. Oh man, well, I have all the tales from the West Virginia Hills holotapes, but they're just stories. Not like the mutated animals in the mire. You don't want to mess with those, Frankie grinned. You ever see any of them? Burr asked. No, sir. Well, at a safe distance, I did. Plenty of other folk did, but most never made it. One or two survived. And what did you think to their stories? Oh, unreal. I mean, these were all folk who knew the land, knew how to move around the mire safely, and they didn't take risks. They were brave, but these attacks really messed them up. Frankie said with a shudder. Bart nodded, his hands folded across his chest. To Frankie, he looked like he was about to doze off. Well then, you'll understand this one. Lots of things we've brought into this world because of the nukes, and this monster was very much a product of its environment. Frankie gulped down a mouthful of cold meat fruit juice. So about Joel. I was a combat surgeon in the war before I retired here seen a lot in Anchorage. You'd think I'd be cold to the injuries folk come in with, but when Joel came staggering in that night, I, I was afraid. Hands shook the whole time I operated, 
And, uh, well, this is what his partner, Gilda, told me. She ain't one for tall tales. She's an experienced hunter. West Virginia is in her blood. Frankie leaned forward in his chair, chin resting in his hands. It was summer. Long days. Perfect for them to spend a couple of days away from here. Your holotapes, boy? Well, you know there are things that don't live by the laws of nature. The sun baked the rock and earth underfoot. Joel's skin prickled in the heat as he and Gilda climbed the hill path. There's some shade at the top, Gilda said as she looked back to Joel. He wasn't quite burnt from the sun just yet, but he'd probably break out into freckles later. Oh, thank goodness. If I listen closely, I can hear my skin cells screaming, Joel laughed. Gilda was already sat down under a cluster of trees, her backpack resting on the ground and her rifle laid out beside her, always close to hand and ready. Watch out for ticks, Joel warned as he passed Gilda a flask of cold bloodleaf tea. <laughs> Very funny. At least they're easier to see than the tiny deer ticks before all this radiation. Fun to shoot too. But like popping balloons. Ugh, ugh, that's disgusting, Joel grimaced. Of all the things to survive, it had to be ticks. Why couldn't it have been a, a butterfly? No, no, I bet radiation would have turned them monstrous too. Hmm. Beaten to death by giant butterfly wings, Gilda wondered as she dug a hand into her backpack for their lunch. You ever see those tarantula wasps you get in the deserts? One of the most painful stings in the world. Now those, I hope, didn't get mutated into something else, Joel shivered. It's not all bad. I found a cat the other day. It didn't look like it had been turned into something terrible. They ate their lunch in a comfortable silence, a far cry from the busy responder HQ. The valley stretched out before them, tree-covered hills falling away to the Ohio River in the distance. kind of want a cat at home now, Joel said as Gilda lay back, enjoying the cool shade under the trees. Hey, sweetie. Want to come lie down with me for a bit? Oh, jeez. Bert, okay, I get it. What's this snuggly, lovey-dovey crap got to do with the story? Frankie pulled a face in disgust. Boy, I was just getting to that, Bert grumbled. <sighs> Darn kids don't appreciate good storytelling these days. He sat up and composed himself again. My point was, Joel and Gilder were comfortable and relaxed. They thought they were alone. Why would they think anything else? Joel leaned over to kiss Gilda. His head snapped up at the faint rustle of leaves. He jumped back at the sound of, what was that? It sounded like a person chortling from the undergrowth. Hey, get out of here, you creep, he shouted. He could have sworn there was a shadow moving quickly away. Gilda sprang up and barely caught a glimpse of it. She laid a hand on her rifle, but whoever it was had gone. What the? Somebody watching us? She shuddered. I think so. I didn't get a good look at them. Kind of a little distracted, you know, he grinned bashfully. Gilda giggled and nudged him gently. Still, ugh, that's got my skin crawling. There's something not right. Do you feel it? She asked. She picked up her rifle and started to follow in the direction of the shadow. Hold up. Maybe trying to follow them isn't such a good idea. They seem to have run off, Joel reasoned. Uh, yeah, at least now they know we aren't quite as dozy as they first thought, Gilda said. Definitely something strange. 
Oh, do you smell that? I think something died out there and he's been dead for a long time, Joel gagged and waved a hand at the stench. Gilda peered around, but saw nothing close by. Let's get moving. We still need to find somewhere to pitch our tent for the night, Gilda said as she shouldered her backpack. They set camp that afternoon, enjoyed a simple dinner. Whatever I'd been watching them could have struck then, but it didn't. Later that evening, Gilda woke up sharply. Moonlight was all she could see by when she opened her eyes. A cold chill creeped into her bones, even although she was cuddled into Joel. That smell again. It clogged her nostrils. You could almost taste it. Joel grumbled and rolled over. Gilda quickly wrapped her arms around him. Her stomach churned and writhed like a bad case of food poisoning. She clamped a hand over her mouth, praying she wouldn't be sick. Dragging steps in the dirt, the, the guy lines plucked like guitar strings shook the tent. Just beyond the canvas was the brittle rustle of leaves and branches. They had picked a clearing. There was nothing close that would be making that sound so loudly. What was it? Gilda found herself squeezing Joel tight when she heard heavy, nasal breathing outside. She strained her ears to try and identify what was snuffling around the tent, but all she could hear was a thud in her chest. Could this thing hear that? She peeped open one eye. The canvas bulged inwards towards Joel's face as he mumbled and stirred awake. Gilda gripped him tighter as he woke finger over his lips to tell him to stay silent. She felt herself holding her breath. So hungry. Then, as quickly as it had come, the thing was gone. Gilda laid very still. Joel trembled, neither one wanting to move or speak first. What the hell? Joel whispered hoarsely. Did you see that? That voice? I was dreaming, right? I had to be. The smell from earlier. I did. Gilda's voice wavered fearfully. I felt sick and cold. I wanted to get my gun, but what if it was a pack of whatever that thing was out there? Oh, I need to scrub myself with a Braxo now. You know what I mean? Joel asked. Yeah. Do we agree that we need to head home first thing in the morning? Sure. Come on, honey. Let's try and get some sleep. Joel struggled to bring calm to his voice as he held Gilda close. Sure enough, they cut their trip short, struck camp, and left barely a trace, Bart added. Ugh, I don't blame them, Frankie shivered. You know how foggy it can get here some mornings? Frankie nodded. <sighs> Great. Joel sighed squinting as the rising sun made it more difficult to see anything through the fog. He rolled his shirt sleeves down against the damp hair. I've never seen tracks like this. Come take a look, Gilda waved to him. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell. It's like human feet scuffed around. A practical joke to spook us, Joel frowned. You think? Gilda got up and grabbed her rifle. Well, I'm not finding it funny at all. What? What is that? Joel whispered. Gilda followed his hand, pointing towards a greyish shadow, hunchbacked, limbs emaciated and frail looking. Listen, there are 
are no birds singing, she hissed. It looks like what I saw yesterday, Joel murmured. It's got to be a person. It looks like they're starving. Stay back, Gilda warned. She peered through her rifle scope. A shrill roar pierced the air and deafened them. Gilda was thrown back, her rifle flung to the side as it was swiped out of her grip. Gilda! Joel cried. Joel paled even whiter. A wendigo! Gilda groaned as she struggled to sit up, gasping for air. A trembling hand found her hunting knife. She daren't risk making move for a rifle. Joel was rooted to the spot as the wendigo circled. Pale, spidery limbs stalked, claws dragging furrows in the earth. He glanced back and forth between Gilda and the wendigo. How had he got between them? What was he doing? His breath puffed in rapid, shallow gulps. The wendigo still paced. Snaggletooth maw pulled back in a gruesome, lipless mimic of a smile as it sniffed the air. The ropey muscles bunched. Joel screamed as the wendigo launched itself at him with a horribly human shriek. Joel! Gilda cried as she tried to get to her knees. Her head reeled with movement. She had to get up! Fabric and flesh ripped as the creature slashed with its filthy claws. Joel howled in pain. Foul jaws snapped close to his ear, flat human teeth and jagged fangs. Acidic drool dripped onto his cheek. Gilda saw him blindly struggling to get hold of the Wendigo's arms, frantic as the teeth clicked and it threw another vicious swipe. Joel! Gilda screamed and threw a stone at the Wendigo. The hollow face turned to her. Black, sunken pits for eyes stared right through her. Gilda stood, her balance wavering, hunting knife held in front of her. She swayed as she took a step forward. Get off him, she snarled. The Wendigo bellowed. Its roar was reduced to a squeak. When Joel grabbed its scrawny neck, he flung it off him. When Joel staggered to his feet, he kicked viciously with his boot, throwing himself onto the sprawling monster. A large rock in both hands lifted high above his head. Gilda watched, hardly able to believe it was Joel, as he smashed the boulder down into the Wendigo's face. She winced at the brittle, pulpy sound mixed in with Joel's terrified screams. The legs of the Wendigo twitched spasmodically. Gilda put a hand on his shoulder. He was quaking all over. Eyes wide, whites bright against the blood. Slash marks tracked down one side from hairline to chin. His shirt was torn and bloody. There was nothing left but shattered bone, bloody mush, and the rock that landed with a sloppy splat as it fell from his hands. Holy shit! Frankie stared slack-jawed at Bert. No way. Yep. That's the truth. I did the best I could, but those wounds scarred terribly. It's a damn miracle he didn't lose that eye. Gilda told me all about it over a whiskey when I was done operating. But a wendigo? Frankie gasped. Yep. They might be monsters, but they've still got some human left in them. Your holotape has more than a grain of truth in it. Nothing worse than looking at something and seeing that reflection of evil staring right back at you. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the story. 
If you'd like to keep up to date on the progress of my podcast drama that's in production, Far From Heaven, a Fallout 76 story, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Honor and Steel. And there's also more Fallout 76 content on both those accounts as well. I look forward to seeing you and thank you so much. The fires die down, and there's some worrying noises coming from the bushes behind the Red Rocket Garage over there. Grab your gear. It's midnight, and we're headed to the White Spring to raise a little mischief. Stay safe out there, Wastelanders. Good night. Maverick Stone. It's me, Gingerino42. I'm Roman. Hey, this is Sassy Lady. And I'm Jaxus. And we, we are the Fallout Roundtable. Join us as we explore various topics from the Fallout universe brought from multiple perspectives. We can be found on your favorite podcatchers from Spotify to iTunes. Or follow us on Twitter at FalloutRTB or our email FalloutRTB at gmail.com. Be sure to rate, follow, and subscribe. Thank you. You've been listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.net.